every so often you encounter something, you don't have a ready-made reaction for it because nobody told you how to feel about that. Nobody said, this is, you know, what most people feel in this situation, therefore you may wish to feel it too. And I, this is something I do think about a lot, you know, how many people feel like they are allowed to feel everything. piece. Conversations about the work behind the work with diverse artists from all over the globe. My name is Ruby Josephine Smith, and not only am I the creator and host of this podcast, I am a choreographer and contemporary dance artist. This is a podcast in process about process. I am not only fascinated by the creative process itself, but how to have better and more meaningful conversations about it with artists of different cultures, backgrounds, and mediums. Join me in digging deep into what it is that drives a person to make art. Hello and happy 2021 to all of you artists, creators, friends, and listeners. Following a turbulent year, we are similarly going through some turbulent transitions and shifts as we move into a new one. However, I still hold firm to my belief that even as it fluctuates and changes, art is a constant. And for that reason, I am thrilled to be starting a new year of episodes and conversations on deep process. I had thought about doing a whole rebranding of process piece for the new year. However, nothing has really changed in its format enough to warrant doing so. There is, however, a sort of refocusing, deepening the questions about what process and being an artist mean to each individual, and what connects very different artists as well. These new episodes this year have kind of a renewed purpose, which is not to give you answers or advice, but to make you ask yourself better questions on your own creativity and practice. I hope to open up new territory to explore, challenge your own beliefs about your process and work, and give you a renewed sense of purpose and curiosity, whether you identify as an artist or not. I always love hearing from you, so please always feel free to reach out and tell me what you are asking, what you were thinking about, and what inspired you after listening to these conversations. We can always connect on Instagram at processpiece, on my Facebook page, which is also processpiece, or you can even send me an email through my website, which is rubyjosephine.com. Also, this year I am unashamedly putting it out there that I would love to see even more growth with this podcast. So please, if you enjoy it, recommend it to a friend, screenshot and share it on Instagram, or spread the word however you see fit. Thank you to everyone who has been here since the beginning for your support and love towards this project. Anyway, on to the spectacular guest who is quietly, thoughtfully, beautifully padding into the new year with us. I have been a fan of Ella Frances Sanders' work for quite some time and was thrilled to have the chance to get to know her more and speak about her process. If you are unfamiliar with her, here's a little bit of background. Ella Frances Sanders is an internationally best-selling author and illustrator of three books. Her first book, Lost in Translation, was published in September 2014 and became an international bestseller. It sat on the New York Times bestseller list for four consecutive months and was an Amazon Best Book of 2014. Her second book, The Illustrated Book of Sayings, was published in 2016 and has also been printed in over eight languages. Her third and most recent, Eating the Sun, Small Musings on a Vast Universe, was published in 2019 and has also received a large handful of wonderful reviews and acclaim. Ella lives in a lovely windswept coastline in Ireland. 
Ella is one of the most contemplative conversation partners I have had the pleasure of speaking with. She chooses her words so thoughtfully, and for that reason I found titling this episode incredibly difficult because so many bits and pieces of what she said sounded like poetry. Among those bits and pieces of what we talked about were topics ranging from why and how she feels that asking questions is her love language, the constant connection she finds between words and images and how that relates to her bookmaking process, distilling down huge universal ideas and scientific matter, perfectionism versus the inevitable chaos of the world, and quite simply, miracles, which is one of my favorite parts near the end. I found myself smiling as I listened back on this whole conversation, and I have the feeling you will too. So without any further introduction, please enjoy this conversation with Ella Francis Sanders. Well, Ella, welcome to Process Peace. I am so happy to have you here. I am delighted to be here. It's lovely. Thank you. Um, So I always start these conversations in a similar place. Um, So I'd like to ask you, what is your first memory of creating something? I love this question. I mentioned to you just now that I have listened to some of these episodes and people's answers are always very interesting. Mm -hmm. I tried not to think about it because I wanted to be able to produce this spontaneous (laughs) answer. But um, I have three siblings and we're all fairly close in age. There's 10 years between the eldest and the youngest. Um, Mm. So there was always, my parents both did languages at university and are are fairly creative liberal types themselves. Uh, (laughs) So there was a lot of creation and Um, you know, creativity and materials and possibilities. Um, When I kind of think about my childhood, that is what is most, um, it kind of rises to the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, kind of more just a very general good feeling of freedom and, and creativity in that sense. That's a beautiful thing to kind of have rise to the surface of your memory. Yeah, 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 definitely. I This is something that I want to go more in depth with in your process, but I've noticed that these kind of themes of magic in small things and almost a kind of mysticism in creativity run through a lot of your work. And I'm just curious if those words or concepts, if you have kind of a relationship to them in your upbringing. So if you remember those themes coming up in your childhood. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, we were encouraged to be really kind of curious and there was never any there was never any kind of dismissiveness when it came to wondering about something or asking how something worked or why something happened Mm -hmm. um and you know I I didn't have scientists for parents I had kind of uh linguists effectively so a lot of the Mm -hmm. time we would ask absurd questions and if they didn't know know the answer then it's kind of anybody's anybody's guess as to um (laughs) So there was definitely a lot of unknowns, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is probably why now I feel very comfortable in that space, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of at odds with part of my personality, which is, um, I suppose, driven out of kind of anxiety and uh, kind of perfectionism and wanting to not move forwards unless I have all the pieces and all the information. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's this is very fascinating um conversation to have with you because I one of the strangest things is not ever knowing how your work or how your creative practice uh, 
presents itself to other people. Right. You can have intentions um, and ideas about how it might land, but you can't ever really predict that. Um, right. It's one of the unknowns you have to kind of embrace. Yeah. So were you, I mean, your work now is writing and illustrating. Did those kind of both present themselves early on or did one come before the other? I, I've been asked this and I, I usually know how to answer because I usually give a very straightforward answer. I would, mm-hmm. um, I would, I mean, I think language and English I have been, it feels like I'm sort of betrothed to it, mm. totally in love for a very, very, very long time. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't have called myself an illustrator until maybe kind of around the time, I suppose, that the first book happened, which is maybe seven or so years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I felt much more comfortable with my relationship to words I would say for a longer Mm -hmm. period of time um I think that's where I found yeah like more found parts of myself reflected back Mm -hmm. more consistently um and it wasn't that I you know wasn't kind of paying attention to other mediums and um different types of artists or um but I yeah it feels like I've relied relied on words in a different way in order to be able to say what I want Mm. um but then now having kind of, and I feel extremely lucky to have kind of dragged both of these things forwards with me all the time. Yeah. Um, the, the um, I can't really imagine separating them now because there are times when the words aren't there and almost in every, in nearly every single time that happens, there is a way to to draw it. And, you know, my style of drawing isn't, all-encompassing I can never it's detailed but it's small and it's not you know it doesn't always have some of the expressiveness that I think I would like to be able to have Mm. um but it feels like yeah it feels like if something if someone you know you have two very close people in your life and if one lets you down you can you can do the other one kind of thing but the (laughs) other one will never mind there's just sort of this nice um I don't know whether you could call it symbiotic. That sounds a bit grand, but I feel very fortunate to have both of those things as a part of my work. Yeah, I think it makes so much sense because I see them as working together so poetically. I mean, even if you're not setting out to write poetry exactly, I'm not sure if that's ever in your mind, but the way they work with the illustrations, I see as creating kind of a sort of poetry together. Mm, That's lovely. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Just going back into kind of your background a little bit more before we dive deep into your process, I had read in another interview that you spent, I think, a year or two, an unhappy year or two in fine art. And I just wanted to ask you about that. Were you studying fine art and what what made it an unhappy year when you were focusing solely on that? That's fascinating. I don't remember where that might have been. <laughs> I did study fine art and graphic design for about two years mm-hmm. um which was a kind of this was before I was going to do my English degree mm-hmm. because on education kind of formal education and I have since the beginning of time been the most dreadful combination we did not <laughs> get along I I've tried to kind of dissect this 
and it never really goes very well, but I don't know whether it was kind of the formality or, you know, I was very quiet and kind of perceptive and a lot of what people, a lot of how children interacted with each other or how they interacted with teachers really, really bothered me, upset me a lot because people Mm -hmm. didn't seem to be caring about each other in the ways that I had been kind of brought up to expect um, of kind of myself or maybe of others. Um, Mm -hmm. It was like an 18 year learning curve, I guess. So there was this two years of fine art and graphic design. And I, again, some of that kind of unhappiness came from the fact that nobody else seemed to be caring about, it didn't, you know, it didn't matter to people in the way that it mattered to me. And I guess a lot of what I'm thinking about in my work now is how can I help people care about this? Either Mm -hmm. how can I help them care about it more or how can I help them care about it at all? Because in a lot of areas of life, we kind of move so fast that we do forget to care about things or how to, how to care about them. Um, So, I mean, yeah, it was, I guess it was an experimental couple of years in a good way, but yeah, I'm still not, I wouldn't say that it necessarily gave, gave me a lot. I think it kind of stretched me or pushed me out in ways that could not have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might have been better, but I, I'm definitely not somebody who works in a language of regret. So I don't, yeah. you know, everything that's happened to me in my life, I'm, it's fine. It can stay. Right. Wouldn't change I didn't it. read it's, it as it that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I ask that just because it's something that I'm personally quite curious about because I actually, I also studied two years in a liberal arts school focusing on dance. And I ended up not finishing because when I started traveling and seeing what else was out there and the other ways to be truly curious about dance out in the world, I found that so much more fulfilling. And Mm. I've found talking to so many people that did study dance in a conservatory or any kind of art in a conservatory, often it almost interrupts the natural creative process and kind of not for everyone, this is generalizing a lot, but can almost kind of squish that natural passion that you have for it instead of moving it forward. Um, so I was just curious if it was kind of a similar um, theme that was, that yeah, was for I you. Think, yeah, I think it, I think it probably is. I mean, I know that kind of structured arts educations can work for a lot of people. Absolutely. I think it depends, you know, they, and fabulously, they get on great. Um, yeah. But I, I guess it just so much depends on what type of personality you kind of have the ways in which your mind works um it was a bit like being asked to squeeze through all of these small spaces and I was never the right shape for the spaces Mm -hmm. um so I think it just felt kind of uncomfortable and and kind of yeah I guess I came to the conclusion at some point there there's probably a a better way to do this yeah that's beautifully said that's exactly what I felt so (laughs) Mm -hmm. I like the way you put that Um, Well, starting to get into your books and your more current work, um, I also read in several interviews, you've told the story a lot of um, how Lost in Translation came to be, and you speak about that book as coming to you instead of you looking for it. Um, And I, I think this is a really interesting part of the creative process that is very beautiful and very frustrating, that often what we're looking for doesn't always come to us and things that we're not looking for suddenly 
surprise us. Um, and so I'm curious what your relationship with that kind of process has been since then. Have you gone seeking for other opportunities or have they still been coming towards you? Mm, I'm just trying to think how can they make a very, very long story slightly shorter. So the origins of the first book that I did, Lost in Translation, those origins are, they're actually in Morocco. I, right. this would have been, I guess I was there sort of 2010, mm -hmm. 2012. So I was working for a startup that was based out there. Um, and this was kind of my interim experience before going on to do English degree. And the work that I was doing for them was mainly writing um, and also a tiny bit of illustration. So towards the, I was, I don't know, a month away from starting this um, degree. And I wrote and illustrated for them this, this short blog post, which was 11 untranslatable words from other languages, countries. I can't remember the wording exactly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I read that way back when. I remember that. would that. be incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I was always looking for things like that. And I think I, was it called Maptia or something? Yeah, I think I yeah. was kind of following their work because I was is... traveling a lot at that time. That was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. I know. Uh, Such a small world. Well, so the blog post went kind of berserk. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why people loved this so much. I mean, people do like you know, this, I guess the idea of distilling complicated emotions into one word, mm -hmm. it, it, it hooked. <laughs> um, so it got reposted a lot. And, and it seems absurd to say this because so many people have contacted me since kind of uh, asking if I get, have any advice, you know, how to go out and pitch to an editor or how to pitch to an agent. And mm -hmm. I kind of got smacked in the face by it when I was on a completely different, completely different road. And a US book editor sent me a message saying, we would like to talk to you about turning this into a book. And I would have been a fool to just breeze right past that. <laughs> uh, so followed it up. One thing led to another. Started the degree, had to um, defer my place on that English course because I was writing this book, couldn't do them at the same time. And I have been able to work full-time since. So I feel incredibly fortunate. It has given me a lot, a lot, a lot of, I suppose kind of professional freedom in a way. Mm -hmm. And I'm, a, I'm aware of, the fact that a lot of people who complete arts degrees cannot find jobs afterwards. Right. So I'm sure there's a version of my life where I say, no, thank you. This is lovely, but <laughs> I'll continue with my English degree, finish that and kind of get stuck again and again and again, or, you know, can't do the things that I want to do. Yeah. Um, so everything happened in a very, very bizarre order. So that's why I kind of, to go back to your, starting point, <laughs> convoluted answer, to go back to your starting no, point, to hear that, that is, story. <laughs> yeah, that is why I have said in the past that it kind of came to me rather than me going towards it, because it, if someone had approached me with an open kind of, do you want to write a book about something? Mm -hmm. That probably wouldn't have been what I said. Um, 
because it wasn't necessarily what I was thinking about personally at the time. And then the second book kind of happened fairly naturally afterwards because they wanted to do, the publisher wanted to do something that was similar, different, kind of vain. So my most recent book, I suppose, is the one that I feel most, I mean, attached is maybe the wrong word, but that was something I would have said, I want to write a book about this. I think about these things Mm. a lot. These images are in my head a lot. It would be good if I could put them down. Um, Yeah, that's kind of the, the story that accompanies that comment. Yeah. Your most recent book, how did, how did it come about? Was that something that you you had the idea for it and then began the process? Or yeah, what was the kind of timeline for that? Yeah, the um, as an idea and as a kind of book proposal, it existed after the first book, before the second one. So it was something okay. that I had kind of discussed doing and had raised doing. Um, and it hadn't been the right time and it hadn't been the right publisher. So... Mm-hmm. It landed in the place where it was meant to land, I guess. And I think I finished, I would have finished um, writing that end of 2017, kind of spring 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I I am a, I suppose, fairly inherently existential person. <laughs> uh, and I find a lot of reassurance, I suppose, in the way a lot of people do from knowing how small and how insignificant um, my human life is on this grand, grand, ludicrous timescale of everything. (laughs) Um, So I want, yeah, I guess those were some of the things that sort of gnawed at me. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was so, so excited when somebody said yes to doing that Um, because I'd had a lot of conversations with people along the lines of like the decisions that you make now of they're going to inform like you're going to be able to get to all these different places if you choose this thing or if you pursue this option mm-hmm. but you might actually be closing doors that you potentially want to have open in a couple of years time or mm-hmm. and I don't really think I'm not, I guess I'm not really a very long-term uh think I don't you know five-year yeah. plan ten-year plan that is not me that is not <laughs> sure. sometimes it's hard to plan a day uh yes. so <laughs> and and when you're talking about books they are really long time scales because mm-hmm. a publishing date might be two or three years away from where you are and you don't yeah. have a clue what's going to happen in between you don't know what things will happen in your life in the lives of people who are close to you you don't know so it's an odd odd way to work I think which is why I suppose more recently have thought a lot about bringing in more kind of short-term yeah projects or or doing more freelance things because Mm. they they mean something different and they kind of sit somewhere different in in the end in my thinking yeah more momentary yeah 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 in your book eating the sun you talk about such huge kind of universal concepts but really simplify them down to kind of the small And that's something I'm really fascinated in my own work as well. So I'm just curious how, what is the process of even beginning to do that for you? What does that look like? Well, I suppose with the book, I guess what I wanted to do was explain these things in a way that would make sense 
or have meaning to a greater number of people because scientific language is quite, I suppose it's quite prohibitive in some ways and it doesn't necessarily set out to estrange people, but it definitely does. And I don't think it does, I don't think it really helps science and I don't think it really helps everyone else. Some people want to know how complicated complicated things work. Other people are more interested in, I don't know, what time their shift is going to end. They don't want to think about how the planets rotate. Don't need to know, just too much, you know. Um, (laughs) Too much information. (laughs) Which is fine, but I felt like there were a, a lot of people who would get something out of, you know, slightly more simplified explanations. You know, writing the book, it was, I had to understand a lot of these things for the first time. It involved a lot, a lot of reading. Some of it, which of which brought me to tears. I would be, you know, sitting there, wow. uh, <laughs> rocking myself in a chair, thinking, "How, you know, how we, you, how we hit all this anyway." Um, <laughs> in terms of how I did that, or how I wanted to do it, and whether or not I achieved kind of what I set out to do. Yeah. So it was wanting. It was. It was ma- the fact that it mattered to me other people can maybe understand these things and they don't and they don't because nobody has taken the time to explain them Mm -hmm. um which in a weird way goes back to when I was young because the people I was around were patient enough to explain things to me in the ways that I would understand Mm -hmm. um I feel as though understanding has been for a very long time you know reserved in whatever shape or form for this elite person that elite person the people who can pay for information or knowledge which has never really felt comfortable to me. So, and the illustrations became an important part of that because even if someone read a chapter in this book and kind of got some of it, but didn't really, and you know, the illustration is still there on the other side and that might still mean something. Um, So it was kind of like a way to, I guess it was kind of like catching everybody or wanting to catch everybody or somebody falls through that explanation. So you catch them with a drawing instead. Yeah. Um, something like that. Yeah. Interesting. That's so interesting that you're really in bookmaking, at least you're really thinking about the takeaway that other people will have. Um, when you're making it, are you thinking of that really actively or is it coming from somewhere a little more intimate and personal? I think it's probably somewhere quite deep because although I say all of these things, you can't know how another person will read anything or understand anything which is of course one of the really fascinating things about books and about art um about any creative format really um and dance too i imagine you it all depends on who that person is like what kind of day they've had what they had to eat for lunch who they're going to see afterwards have they had a phone call they didn't want to have it's all of those things coalesce around the experience of reading that page or watching that performance um which is a really fascinating thing so i don't think i cling so tightly to what i want people to get out of the book but i i do want to try and catch them in ways that i can i guess yeah yeah that makes sense there was one um there was a quote that i just wanted to share from eating the sun and it was shared through brain pickings um so i found it on that art that lovely article about it <laughs> um and you wrote when one is considering the universe unseen matter i think it is important sensible even to try and find some balance between laughter and uncontrollable weeping 
And I just love this. Um, I think there are so many things in life that create that reaction, um, including the pondering of the universe and including as well the creative process. I mean, I find myself going back and forth between those things as I create and as I try to make art. Um, and so I just, I don't know if there's a question in there more, it's just kind of your thoughts expanding on that quote in relation to both the universe, but also kind of down into the process of making art. Sure. Um, it's funny hearing things that you've uh, written, written back to you. It doesn't yeah, stop being, sure. it doesn't stop being strange. Sometimes you're kind of like, oh, really? That was a sensible thing to say. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I think it's always good to remind people that they don't need to have kind of pre-formatted, pre-thought-out reactions to things. This is something that I talk about with people a lot, especially people whose kind of brains work very differently. Like mm. the question of, is something a thought? Is it an emotion? Is it a feeling? Mm. Probably a psychoanalyst would be the person to talk about this with. But, you know, how <laughs> do you... A thought is one thing. So you can think this thing about the universe or you can feel this thing about the universe. And my guess, yeah, I feel as though almost everybody, you do have almost kind of these ready-made, yeah, maybe ready-made reactions mm -hmm. to things. And every so often you encounter something, you don't have a ready-made reaction for it because nobody told you how to feel about that. Nobody said, this is, you know, what most people feel in this situation, therefore you may wish to feel it too. And I, this is something I do think about a lot, you know, how many people feel, you know, how many people feel like they are allowed to feel everything that they can feel or definitely think everything that they can think because there's a lot of, you know, crossing out and um, what's what I want? The word's gone. Censoring? Yes, censoring. <laughs> um, and I feel as though people too easily do that with their emotions and definitely with huge, huge topics, mm -hmm. the universe, space, time. Um, I, I guess I felt in writing that there was definitely, in writing that, that people could feel whatever they wanted to feel about it. Mm -hmm. So if people felt saddened deeply by, you know, this additional, you know, bit of understanding about this or that, that's fine. And if people wanted to, you know, laugh and think that is really absurd. I maybe don't even believe this person. It's absurd. Right. That's fine too. Yeah, I guess I want a lot of things for other people very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you just want more openness of, of thought and of feeling. And I think that's a beautiful thing to want, especially right now. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, if you're somebody who watches other people, and I am somebody who watches other people, or not kind of dissect things, but observe their ways of being and kind of the problems they run into, it's... I hate seeing, I'm not sure hate is the right word, but I, I really dislike seeing um, other people in avoidable suffering. Like mm. you can see the ways in which they kind of avoided something. I find that quite hard because I do want the best for everybody. I really do. <laughs> I need to <laughs> lower my expectations yeah. slightly of how much humanity <laughs> can achieve in any certain period of time. Um, yeah. No, it, yeah, I guess it comes from, that particular sentence you you read, I guess, is has kind of 
its origins in those kinds of um, yeah. wishes. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so much of your work is really just about humanity and kind of the connections we share and the kindness we can try to create between each other and between the universe. And yeah, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I think that's something we need more of. Thank you. You're very, you're very kind. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, so in terms of um, kind of bringing it back to process, um, how do you feel about yourself kind of as an artist? Is that something you are comfortable attributing to yourself? It's funny that the what well, I think about words a lot. So it's very interesting, the words that we choose to yeah. give ourselves. If people ask what I do, and they inevitably do ask what I do, because for better or worse, that is one of our uh, go-to sentences yeah. when we want to find out who a person is. Right. Um, I think I, I would say I'm a, I think I tell them my name, I think I probably, well, no, it depends who it is. If I don't really want yeah. them to know what I do, uh, <laughs> I tell them I'm an illustrator. I tell them I make books, that I write mm-hmm. books. I probably tell them that I continue or wish to continue doing that for as long as possible. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether I've ever really inhabited the word artist and I don't know why. And it's not that I've intentionally moved away from it. There just seemed to be some kind of, not even a barrier, just more like a different, just like, yeah, maybe like a river on a different kind of course. And I was, I can imagine myself on this illustrator river and the artist river was over there and that's fine. But I, it, it didn't really feel like the same route. I don't know why, but I, yeah. I definitely haven't described myself as an artist for maybe ever. Interesting. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not sure what this says. Um, no, I tell people that I, yeah, That's I'm a writer or an illustrator. Mm. I've had, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people about what it means to be an artist. And I always find it really interesting when there is something kind of mystical that comes into the conversation, something about... Um, you know, having a calling or asking certain big questions, um, which is the the questions that seems to be what you do in your work is ask these really big questions and kind of try to find creative ways to maybe not answer them, but explore them and lead that to other questions. Mm, I'm glad you brought up questions. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I, yeah, I think I run on questions. I mean, p- people say that this or that or another is kind of the love language. I think mm-hmm. this is sometimes sometimes what people say. Um, yeah. I definitely, I yes, it feels like I eat, do a lot of devouring of questions. I also mm-hmm. ask people a lot of questions because I've always, and still am, by far, you know, above and beyond, far more comfortable being a listening to somebody than talking I tend to forget to breathe so I'm I mean I'm breathing right now this is good (laughs) yes Um, (laughs) yeah so I do ask people a lot of questions Mm -hmm. sometimes probably too many or it's just big some people are not comfortable being asked large questions that's more what it is right um so I guess yeah I I suppose I am trying to answer them in whatever shape or form and sometimes you can ask a question with a small drawing that is something I like a small illustration can actually mm. offer a question to people rather than it, than it being direct question mark at the end yeah um which is something I've definitely grown to to like a lot that's beautiful can you think of an example of that 
a an illustration asking a question. Yeah, I, do, I love that concept. I'm curious if you have something specific. Um, yeah, I suppose. Well, actually, I think that some of the drawings that I do then involve small figures, small people. Um, sometimes I'll do small kind of speech bubbles or remarks between them, but sometimes I won't. And the times that I don't put words between them, the kind of body language of those small people or there was a strange little drawing I did which had this kind of large amorphous black shape with arms sitting in the armchair and that was one side and then on the other side there was this small person clothed person and I think I had drawn them holding a plate of fruit or a small Mm. plate of fruit and it was like the person was offering the small plate of fruit to this maybe terrifying maybe not terrifying shapeless black thing in a chair um people had a lot of thoughts about that uh but it, it definitely asked people a question yeah do you think your work has do you think there's kind of a central question that you're trying to get at in a lot of your work or do you think it's just made up of a lot of these smaller pieces um i think it's probably some of both but i i suppose yeah if you kind of zoomed zoomed out a bit on the questions probably quite a persistent overarching one would be how how should a person be how should a human be how should we collectively be Hmm. um i think that gets fed into quite a lot yeah it just makes me think I'm like now this just thinking that to large myself <laughs> I know large questions just kind of stun you to silence sometimes you it's have just... no oh, I, I was gonna ask you a question I was gonna okay. ask you whether you have particular questions that you revolve around actually it's interesting the word revolve because I'm guessing that you do do a lot of literal revolving um do. <laughs> do you have any yeah I would be very interested if you have questions that you revolve around yeah I think they've evolved a lot in the past several years. I think they've grown bigger in the past few years. Um, I don't know. I think maybe I'm still trying to figure out if there's a central one that these Mm. are all spreading out from. Lately, I've just been asking a lot about um, the relationship between kind of faith and art. And that's what I like to ask other people about because I'm really curious about that in all forms, whether that's religious faith or just kind of a general universal faith um, and how that relates to our desire to create things mm. um, and that can go in so many directions but that's something that I think about a lot and I'm and would love to make more art about but it's such a big thing that I haven't quite figured out how to distill it which is why I also was curious about how you yeah. distill things it's a it's I mean it's a large task for one person yes <laughs> any one person I I was thinking that I would mention this book because I read it quite recently it's called Handiwork mm-hmm. um it was published this year she's a Irish author Sarah Baum and she had two fiction works and this is non-fiction and it's about her she's an artist as well and she, yeah. it's about her practice essentially her kind of daily practice and what this means in the context of where she lives and her relationships and um there was one you were saying you reminded me of a um quote she talks a lot about a book called the craftsman 
Okay. Uh, and I this was published in 2008 because I looked it up. It's, it's someone called Richard Sennett. Okay. Um, I don't know either of these. I'm gonna. I'm excited to look. Yeah, them. I think you would really. I think you would really. I don't know if it's published in the US. The the book handiwork, but um, okay. I'll get you a copy. Uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> definitely. Um, there was something about. She's talking about how every little piece or all these hours that don't really have seem to have substance, like all the little everyday things that feed into this greater sum and that kind of thing is the practice or is the question Mm -hmm. I can't really remember but what she was essentially talking about was this like if you do create things if you are an artist if your handiwork or your daily work whatever it is same thing is to make things or create you know because you are making something out of nothing this is one of the things that still amazes me in into that sum of your, you know, I have made this thing, you kind of have to include everything, all of your hours of the day where you weren't working on this thing. Um, like all the steps you took, the doors you opened, literally, not literally, I don't know. Um, yeah. But I've, I've definitely thought about that a lot since because I have always worked in the same space that I have lived in, you know, I've always worked from home. Yeah. Um, I haven't ever, it's not that I haven't wanted to separate the two, but I've been thinking more lately about that separation because many people intentionally create that separation. They want to be able to go home and go to the studio wherever they are. Um, right. Which I find very interesting because having for seven, eight years, done everything in and it's not been the same space but it's been the same space um like how to what extent do i include all the cups of tea that i've made or like all the times that i've taken the bin out or how much (laughs) does that feed my my yeah my work i guess right like is that a part of the process yeah 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 and it definitely is yeah Yeah. (laughs) I, i definitely think so yeah yeah, all of these small things. I mean, that's what makes up a a life. And as an artist, that's what makes up an artistic life. Yeah, definitely. But I think there's a tendency, or there can be a tendency, to only talk about the kind of top layer of creation and only discuss the kind of shiny bit, if you like. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think everything else is very important. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of kind of the shiny bits versus that, (laughs) you mentioned in the beginning that you are a bit of a perfectionist. Um, And yet I've also, I listened to a recent podcast you were on, um, The One You Feed, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And you talked quite a bit about chaos um, and also your love of chaos and how everything is eventually leading towards some sort of chaos. And so I'm just wondering how you personally balance that kind of perfectionism in yourself with this knowledge of inherent chaos. It's a very good, it is a tussle. It is something. Like, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I guess, I suppose it's the, I mean, it's odd to be kind of wrapped up in sort of anxious perfectionist like lines of thought and at the same time also feel fairly not really notchalant, but just existential and 
kind of, oh, that's inevitable. Like balancing the two is weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the the accepting of chaos came or or did rise more to the kind of surface became more noticeable as I was working on the book, funny enough, because, ugh, and it's not really like a disregard for order, uh, mm-hmm. but once you know that everything is unraveling and we are heading towards this kind of ultimate state of entropy, you do look at things a little bit differently. Um, and so for me in in, in uh, reality, this looks like, it's like I can't necessarily go upstairs, finish the day if there's a teapot full of tea leaves on the side, because I put the leaves in the teapot. If they're ever going to come out the teapot, I need, you know, I need to wash it up. So I think me and chaos are sort of, it's me practicing or making a point of saying, no, actually the chaos, like you can just leave it overnight. That's fine. Um, I suppose that that's how I interact with it on a kind of day to day basis. It's been, the other thing it's been though is sort of a, um, I guess lots of little realizations. And actually a lot of these have come seemingly as a result of the last six or so months mm. when we haven't had other distractions really at all. Right, yes. Um, <laughs> In this pandemic life. Exactly. Because you can, you know, if a person wanted to, it has been very possible to put a kind of magnifying lens over what you're doing every day and how you're spending the days and what you're producing during the days. The chaos has kind of presented it, itself as a, well, my accepting of the chaos has taken the form of a variety of small realizations, kind of, I guess, mostly to do with my relationship to work or my relationship to certain aspects of work mm. um, or certain decisions that I have made and continue to make in terms of how I present things or things that I pursue or things that I um, that are absent that maybe don't need to be absent Hmm. Um, I'm sure this is all sounding very vague (laughs) no it's interesting I just to like go a little into the specific what would you how has your relationship to work changed maybe over the past six months or longer if you've seen a longer trajectory of that yeah I was yeah so I've had a, a period of relative instability uh I was living in a city for about three years but since then I've been in other places not for any longer than probably six or seven months um and there've been reasons for those moves and they've been different countries and my partner is American so it was the U.S. for a while but what that has meant is that I haven't had all of my materials or, or my normal space all of my books and all of those things fed a lot into my thinking mm-hmm. uh and over time it does kind of feel erosion is quite strong but I suppose it does feel like a kind of creative erosion to not be able to walk across the room pick out a particular book like oh yeah that was that thing that person said <sighs> so yes I would say there has been relative instability for that period of time it has definitely become felt more concentrated and intense this year but I suppose a kind of the last couple of months of my thinking have resulted in, I think I can see quite clearly at this point, the ways in which I have not really stunted, but kind of trimmed off 
creative, but not many possibilities isn't really the right word, but always doing things possibly in one of only a few ways when I know there are a lot of other ways or mm. curating a, a particular type of, I don't know if you'd use the word aesthetic, but I think it's very easy now when so much of what people produce is online and stays there as a sort of odd museum yes. uh, <laughs> that can be, you know, scrolled back in or whatever. Um, it's, I think it's very easy to not realize that you are not taking particular types of risk anymore or that mm. you know that something works and out of a fear of, I don't know, just things not working or people wandering off somewhere else, you keep you keep doing that thing because you know it works. Yeah. I think I've been doing, maybe, maybe what I've been doing is a lot of risk analysis. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Creative That's, risk analysis. Yeah. Mm. That is really something that comes up on social media. And I like the idea of social media as an odd museum. I think that's very mm. <laughs> accurate. Um, yeah. No, I've, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, in the dance community online, it's so... I find it really challenging as a dancer to translate that kind of risk-taking into video, which is, you know, the only kind of thing that can be shared on social media. Because there's this kind of, I mean, it's your body that's making the work and you want it to look good. You know, you, you naturally want it to look aesthetically pretty or interesting. And if it doesn't right away, you don't always take that risk that might not look as aesthetically interesting or pleasing or whatever that is. And so I've definitely gone through periods of feeling stunted by that and then having to do that kind of risk analysis that it sounds mm. like you're doing at the moment yeah definitely a period of risk analysis it's yeah. very interesting because movement that must be an incredibly odd thing to try and capture and post in a small square or or whatever it happens to be that's maybe the most odd thing to try and translate or pin down it um, is, yeah. because you don't find dancers in museums no and <laughs> <laughs> paintings it's much easier to kind of say this thing is is stuck where it is it's not going to change anymore Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's super interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's a challenge. Um, you were talking about, uh, you know, having your books and having your kind of words around you um, as part of your process. And I've, I've noticed by what you kind of share on social media and just your work in general that you seem to be kind of a collector of you know, words, images, uh, languages, all of these kind of things. And so I'm curious how this kind of curation almost plays a role in the creation of your work. Mm. Um, I definitely, yeah, I definitely collect things. I mean, kind of snipping out quotes from things other people have said has been something I've done, I suppose, yeah, 10, yeah, maybe as much as 10 years. Quotes, are so, yeah, the quotes stick a lot mainly because I'm fascinated by, I guess, context and taking something out of a context and how that can mean one thing to people and it will mean another in the context and how much mm -hmm. weight or impact can manage to be, you know, carried in this small number of words, um, which is something I definitely think about when I'm writing and will probably be the reason why I will never write a very, very long book because 
<laughs> I like I like saying things concisely. Yeah. Um, I think a lot about the particular words I may be choosing to use or give to people. So the word collection goes back a long way. I tend to yeah, I tend to just collect small small objects. There's a lot of tiny shells around uh, the house right now. Collect things that are meant to be mended, buttons, Mm -hmm. small plant, small plant specimens is another one. (laughs) I don't know why. I guess maybe they feel really comforting in some way. I haven't haven't particularly thought or analyzed this part of it, but I, I don't know what it is. I like just seeing seeing them there or knowing that they're not going to change or I'm sure some of it is kind of aesthetic um like something's pleasing aesthetically uh which very tiny collections of objects I definitely find to be um me too (laughs) (laughs) I have a tiny rock collection from the north shore of Minnesota so (laughs) yeah perfect that sounds perfect yes um I don't whether it's some kind of way of collecting evidence like if someone needed to understand me I could just point to that instead of explaining kind of thing yeah um but I yeah how it feeds into work not totally sure maybe it feeds into work in that I am consistently drawing very very tiny things rather than very large things (laughs) um and the quotes I don't know yeah I've thought more about quotes the last couple of months because I kind of think about well you know I'm choosing to spend time lettering all these words of other people and what does that mean? Um, but it kind of, yeah, I guess it feels maybe important to dig up things that other people have said and explore yeah. their relevance in what's happening currently. Because it can be quite shocking. Like somebody, you yeah. read something that somebody wrote 50, 100 or more years ago and you think, oh my God, <laughs> that was exactly the sentence I needed today. Yes. And it's so, yeah, it's, it can be so eerie. Um, so I love that. Um, yeah I have two kind of things going off of that and maybe I'm making this into too grand of a metaphor (laughs) but kind of circling back to what we have been talking about is the taking quotes out of context it it seems to me that that leaves more room for questions kind of a similar way that you make illustrations that ask questions when you take a quote out of its original context then you start to question well what what else can these words mean and what other situations can it apply to So that makes sense to me in that way that you already are illustrating questions and then finding another way of creating that space for them. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. It's very possible. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, even just the way your, it's such a small thing, but even your social media, how it's laid out with so much white space. I mean, that's so much space for the possibility around what you're sharing and Mm. offering. Mm. That's interesting that you mentioned the white space because that was one of the things that I was kind of uh, discussing in my risk analysis, Um, which was why do I continue with that much white space? Why have I always done that? Am I now just, Mm -hmm. it's a habit. I can't change it. Anything else will be kind of unsatisfactory to my own eye, my own Mm -hmm. gaze. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Starting to kind of wrap up uh, a lot of the things we've been talking about, I'm just looking at my notes and I just, I wrote miracles with absolutely no question next to it. Um, So apparently that's something I wanted to talk about. Um, I don't know. I I think because of your book and the way you write about um, 
kind of these universal themes, there's so many miracles within them. I don't, do you have any thoughts on miracles? Do I have thoughts on miracles? I probably have a lot of <laughs> odd, rambly thoughts on miracles. Um, ooh, I would like to make a book of miracles, like a very mm. unexpected book of miracles. Um, but this isn't, yeah, I guess that's one of the words that people feel, yeah, they often have a very set response to, be it right. very embracing or dismissive. Um, do I have thoughts on miracles? <laughs> Just such a great question. Um, well, I, I apparently didn't have any other thoughts besides just writing the word down. So. Miracles. I don't think you yeah. need any more than that. Um, no, it's like... Oh, that's just so lovely. I could just think about that, you know, kind of question opening for a while. Um, hmm. <laughs> I think my thoughts on miracles would be that we don't cultivate the small almost invisible ones enough. And that's something that I try to do a lot of is notice things that are often dismissed as ordinary um, and try to fill them with something that people might then notice or the words that you put around something. It's like padding, padding out, padding out mm. something ordinary and, and, you know, giving it to somebody and saying, no, 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 look, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> miracles hmm. it's like just that question <laughs> this is you know people don't often ask me questions or like offer things that make me interesting kind of like huh no i've yeah. gone off to this nice calm area where i'm thinking about all these tiny possibilities for the word miracles it's lovely lovely um, i'm so glad hmm. <laughs> yeah um we definitely expect too much of the word miracle or miracles yeah. And it's not really a word that's employed very much. It's kind of reserved in some ways for exceptional circumstances or exceptional experiences or happenings, which I guess is okay. But I yeah. think we probably, if that's where the miracles is going to stay as a term, then we probably need another word which can kind of describe the rest of it that is still miracles. Yeah um in a way that means it would be something. nice to yeah mm. i don't know i like the idea of kind of redefining it to start to encompass smaller things that we maybe just need to pay attention to more yeah the definitions of a lot of words could do with a lot of revision yes <laughs> yeah absolutely um, well, something i always like to ask near the end is do you have any daily rituals that um help enhance your creative process on a daily basis. And maybe that has something to do with miracles. Who knows? Mm, daily rituals. I guess I am often doing small amounts of tidying because that kind of translates, I suppose, in a wishful way as tidying up my own head. Um, sure. I guess I spend a fair amount of time looking out of windows. That maybe counts as a ritual. I'm not sure. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Ritual window gazing. Um, yeah. I, that's... Great, that should be a thing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely here we have we have great clouds. Nice. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, no, actually, no. Sometimes I do put on shoes to work <laughs> because there's something I don't know. Something I maybe don't like about just wearing socks or not having socks on at all. Sometimes, if I feel like I need to be especially purposeful. I will put on a pair of shoes. 
Very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I I like that because mine is the exact opposite to take off my shoes. Take off your pants. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, is there anything that is currently inspiring your work at the moment? Maybe something small that keeps kind of popping up around you? I guess my forever answer to that is birds. Hmm. I am far too preoccupied with birds. <laughs> yeah, I just find them quite affecting. They're definitely an influence and they're definitely an influence right now because there are a lot of them around and a lot of them are looking a bit thin as we go into this, you know, winter months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Birds, themes. Are birds a theme? Probably. Uh, <laughs> Do they inspire something in particular? Or is it more just kind of the act of noticing them? Well, I like how birds can look as though they're thinking about things in a way that we definitely don't. And I also harbor the suspicion that they know a lot that we don't, you know, you can't yeah. fly backwards around the world and not have come to a few conclusions. <laughs> um, yeah. Is there anything you're currently working on that you would like to share that's upcoming or in process? Well, yes, trying to, well, I suppose right now I'm carving out specifically more time to write and those things might come together eventually into some sort of collection but I think it's good right now for people to not put down too many definite lines around things yeah yeah, yeah. we can't really have too many expectations at this moment in time or ever but especially <laughs> now Forever, exactly <laughs> right um yeah I write a newsletter and I think there was a sentence several people responded to me um and said this phrase had stuck them particularly which was I think like begin at failure and with that being all right, because we do tend to harbor a lot of expectations when it comes to starting things or finishing things or like any kind of beginning the day, the year, the life. Yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. a bit of failure, a few birds are good. <laughs> <laughs> there we have the title for the episode, right? <laughs> Failure and a few birds. I love that. <laughs> well, I absolutely love your newsletter. Um, so that's something I think everyone should go subscribe to. Um, how you. can people find you and your work? What would be the best places? How can they find me? Hmm. Well, uh, <laughs> my website is just my name, ellafrancesanders.com. And I have an Instagram. Mm -hmm. That is ellafsanders. Well, perfect. I'll share all of those links in the show notes so people can easily find it. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing conversation. It's taken us so many fascinating directions and it's just been a pleasure. I hope we've actually answered some things rather than... <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been talking about questions, so I think it's good to just leave with even more questions and who knows how people will choose to answer yeah. them. So I think that's good. No, thank you. This was, this was, um, it was wonderful. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. For links to connect with Ella and see more of her work, head over to the show notes at rubyjosephine.com slash podcast. You can also follow this podcast on Instagram or Facebook at Process Peace and get these episodes delivered directly to your inbox along with a whole lot of extra inspiration by subscribing to my Sunday newsletter via rubyjosephine.com slash subscribe. 
If you've been enjoying Process Peace, I would so appreciate you choosing to support this podcast in any or all of three ways. One, leave a rating and review on iTunes. Two, you can share your favorite episode with a friend or on social media. And three, make a contribution or become a sustaining member at buymeacoffee.com slash rubyjo. A huge thanks again to Ella for this lovely conversation. Thank you to Cooper Lee Smith for creating the original music for this podcast. And a special thanks to you for listening. Wishing you lots of light and joy and creativity in this coming new year.